So, rebuild, return, rebuild, revive. This is the themes that we've been considering in Nehemiah. The returning of the exiles of Israel to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the wall for the purpose of bringing God's people together around a common goal, not the goal to keep people out, but the goal to bring people together so that God can bring about the mystery of a reawakening, a spiritual awakening of his people that have been in captivity. And they have been in captivity due to their own rebellion. And this is why we're gonna end today with this great fundamental truth of human history. It's what I call parallel forces. And now to begin, I wanna just read to you three passages um, that are extremely important, actually four. Um, the first one is Exodus 34, verses five through seven. This is the most quoted passage in scripture. Uh, the scene is Moses comes before God and says, God, if I have truly found favor in your sight, show me your glory. And Moses' request to see the glory of God culminates in God putting Moses in the cleft of the rock, hiding him, and then passing by and proclaiming his own character, his nature over Moses. And it is the most quoted passage in the Bible. And it's a profound uh, insight into the very nature of God. In fact, Tim Mackey and I did a series on this um, called I Am Who I Am. You can listen to it uh, on our website. Uh, but Let's read this passage together. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Notice the descent of God to man. It's always the way that it has to go. It's always the order. Man cannot ascend to God. It's a deeply significant line. God has come down to us. This is what the gospel means. It's down to earth. God come down to us in our brokenness. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, by the way, that's thousands of generations, thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, as Tim wisely points out, that the thousands of generations versus the uh, God actually holding people responsible that are unrepentant to the third and fourth generation, the point is this, is that the scales tip toward mercy. Is that the scales tip toward mercy. That God, the first thing he says of himself is not the Lord, the Lord, a God holy, a God vengeful, a God that keeps track of wrongs in such a way 
that the world is lost. No, this is a God who comes down into our lostness, into our brokenness, and makes it his own. And it culminates, obviously, in the person of Jesus. It's a profound truth. God is a God who declares of himself that he is a God marked by grace. This is why radical grace is a fundamental pillar of door of hope and a conviction of my heart. Because grace always precedes everything. You don't come to a place of repentance unless God has already graciously moved toward you and drawn him to, to himself. You don't ask for forgiveness. You wouldn't ask for forgiveness unless God has already graciously moved into your predicament and made himself known. God is a God. He says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. That is why it is grace. <laughs> and grace, as I have defined again and again, is love without contingency. It's a love that's not based upon you, who you are, or what you have done. It is a love that flows out of the very nature of God. He is love, and it is, na it is his nature to love. And his love is inexorable. He chooses to love sinners in their sin, and he is holy love, which means he is not content to leave you there. And that is a gift, isn't it? This is why we can stumble toward eternity with confidence. It's why I called the book that. It's why I wanted to initially call it the good death, because this is exactly what it is, is that I die to the lie of what God never intended, because I have come alive in Jesus. He has called me to himself. He has put his spirit within me and poured out the gracious love of God into my hearts. And I know that that's redundant to say gracious love, but we need a, a deeper understanding of this word love. Because most things in our world is driven by contingency. Now it may seem like God's love is quite contingent when you read the Old Testament, but Nehemiah and even the prayer that we're gonna consider here in closing tells us that God is unchanging. He is unchanging in his character and he is unchanging in his purposes. He has not forgotten his covenant with his people and God is still fulfilling his covenantal promises that through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed and we are the fruit of that promise that has been consistent with God from before the foundation of the world. And by the way, that's not a time statement before the foundation of the world, that's a God statement. It's an ontological statement. Before the foundation of the world is simply a way of saying a decision made in God, <laughs> in God. So this is what God is like. Now look what it says in Romans three times in chapter one, 24, 26, and 28. When Paul speaks of the righteousness of God, that the just shall live by faith. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ in the beginning of Romans 1, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then the Gentile, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. But he says, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth of those who worship and serve the, create, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. 
of those who willfully turn their eyes away from God and choose to live as if they are their own gods. And we see this played out maybe more fully in this current moment in our world than ever before. But I want you to think about what is going on here. Because this wrath is not a wrath that is God like the sons of Korah, for example. Uh, And I always like to remind you that the sons of Korah were children of Israel, God's chosen people, already taken out of slavery, which is always a picture of the old life, that life of condemnation, and they are now God's children. And the sons of Korah rebel against Moses and say, we want to pick a different leader. We don't think that Moses should have hold the keys to conversation with God. And God says, get everyone away from them in the morning and be far from them. And remember, the earth opens up and swallows the sons of Korah. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. How could God do such a thing? Why do we think it's so terrible? Why do we think it's terrible? We're told that there isn't a person who has ever lived. That Jesus has not held the keys to when they are born and when they shall die. It has been appointed once for man to die. So life and death is always ultimately in the hands of the Creator. Now, God is not responsible for the evil that happens, but God never loses control of the narrative and has the ability to weave our dissonant notes into his redemptive purposes. Even the most evil things in history, God is able to bring good out of, the cross being the ultimate example of that. The sons of Korah were used in this moment for God to remind the children of Israel that he was very much in control and he had made his choice. Moses is the one I have chosen, not at the expense of the children of Israel. I have chosen Moses so that he can lead you, so that he can guide you, so that I can use him. The choice is a responsibility. Korah rebels against God's call upon them to submit to this chosen authority. And they're swallowed up. The reason we're horrified by that is because we immediately assume they went to hell. It doesn't say that. They're God's chosen people. What they experience is the consequences of rebellion. Because even forgiven sinners still experience the consequences of sin. That's forgiven. Do we forget that forgiven sin has the incredible ability to wreak havoc in our lives? You, as a redeemed man or woman, could go out and kill someone today, as Martin Luther said, and there is nothing that could separate you from the love of God. If you indeed are born again, there is nothing that can separate you. Now, there may be some here that come from more of a Wesleyan tradition that believe, man, you can lose your salvation. But I don't know, I just don't see, mainly just because it doesn't roll off the tongue naturally, so I reject it, Um, that uh, one can be born again again. That's That's like a stutter. It's a skip in a record. It's born again, 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 again. That doesn't work. It doesn't sound right. Try to say it. It's a tongue twister. It's because it's not true. Born again is a second birth. And I don't believe that that second birth can be taken away. Now, there are a few passages in the Bible that maybe point us toward that, but I think they are there in Hebrews um, and one in 1 Peter. But I believe that the purpose of those passages are to make us feel the weight 
of taking for granted. What, why would we live like an unsaved person? What is there for us if we reject the, the sacrifice of the cross? Here's the thing. You've been born again, but if you go out and kill someone today, God has forgiven you. He loves you. You're his child, but you're still probably going to go to prison. <laughs> you should actually still go to prison because it's called cause and effect. And the world is ran by rules. It's ran by rules, laws. The universe is ran by laws. And only God has the ability to intervene in those laws. But he actually, it's not really even a violation of laws, it's an intervention in laws. Like an apple falls from an apple tree, whenever God intervenes into a law of his own creation, it's like reaching out and catching an apple which you have intervened in the law of gravity. This is God's functioning in the world. So I just wanna be really clear that when we read this passage about wrath, the reason I share that is not to have a really long intro, Evan, so that I don't actually get to my points, um, but it's to express to you this very purpose, is that the wrath in Romans 1, I would argue, is restorative wrath. It's meant to be restorative. And what I believe in all of my heart is that, and my dad is the great example of this, as long as there is breath in our lungs on this side of eternity, there is hope and there is the possibility of salvation and wrath is not an attribute of God. Wrath did not exist before God created. Wrath is the outcome of God's creation going wrong. It's his love violated. He doesn't turn off his love and pour out his vengeance. His wrath is his love violated. He hates sin because it robs him of what he loves, which is you. That's what you need to understand. And this is how wrath is explained in Romans 1. And there is a wrath that is coming. Don't get me wrong. The final judgment is legit. <laughs> and there are not just, not just a little bit of wrath. There's bowls of wrath. But it is different than what we find here in Romans 1 because Romans 1 is not God striking people with plagues or bringing destruction to, to his creation to start afresh. No, this is God giving them over. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 24. 26, again, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And again in 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do which ought not to be done. It doesn't say God made them do those things. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. That is God giving him up to his own desire because it says many times before it ever says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And finally, God says, you wanna be your own God? I give you over and it becomes a completed reality as an archetype even of Satan where can God loves there is nothing real about Satan he is an active reality that actually has no substance because God is the source of all life so he is living death and God that he has given he has given him up fully to his lies to his evil to his wickedness for you and I, God will give us over. And don't think that for a second that just because you're a Christian, it's not possible for you to experience this kind of wrath. 
because it's very possible to experience this kind of wrath. And I would point out 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to actually argue that point. And that is when it's told to Paul that there is a man sleeping with his own stepmother. Paul says, give that man over. Same language, exact same Greek word. Give him over to the devil. So give him over to the world, to the world system. He's choosing to be his own God. Give him over to the devil that his flesh might be destroyed and that his soul might be saved. Very important to note that because it's the same language. And what happens in 2 Corinthians? It's been told that that man has come back and has been repentant. He's experienced the weight of his own sin and now he has come back to the community. Why are you waiting to receive him back into your arms? He is a brother. I have forgiven him, so should you. That's the response, restorative wrath, okay? These are the parallel realities. These are the parallel forces. God's gracious movement toward humanity and humanity's consistency in rebelling and rejecting that grace. So, let's go through this quickly. Gracious and rebellion in spite of. I want you to apply, it looks weird the way it's written there, but I want you to think of gracious in spite of and rebellious in spite of. It works both ways. Now here continues the prayer as the people of Israel are gathered together in this great awakening in the book of Nehemiah. And this is the prayer that they pray. Speaking of their own history, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Instead of wanting to move toward the promised land, the children of Israel in the wilderness stopped believing that God was good and that God was for them. I just heard a new song today um, uh, that just popped up in my playlist and it's not even uh, um, uh, someone that I really love to listen to, so I won't say who it is, but the lyric was, I don't believe in a God that is good. No, he is, if there is a God at all, he's an absent father. That is the natural temptation when faithlessness enters into our lives. God is not here, he is not good. But let me just say, and I would say to that songwriter, you cannot speak of the absence of God unless you have experienced his presence. So he's sort of, the song's dumb is what I'm saying. It's a very eloquent way of saying that he's dumb. That was dumb. He shouldn't have written it. He should have stopped two records ago. Or maybe he should never have started. I'm just joking. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, look what it says. But you are a God ready to forgive. Notice what they're doing. The prayer moves right back to Exodus 34. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. God didn't give up. 
And even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and he committed great blasphemies. They created their, they created their own God, an image of God to worship. You in your own great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by the day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And it goes on. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land, Zion, king of Hezbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the lands, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of that land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness." Notice, the children of Israel are not some kind of exception, but they are us. They are us. And they rebelled against God in spite of God's faithfulness to them. All of these things he did for them, and yet they still turn back to their old ways. They still forgot to notice that the God of the universe is present, available, consistently calling them to himself. That the law was given not to be some kind of cold, calculated, impossible task, but the law was given as a means of hedging them in so that they could be in intimacy with him. Their great rebellion was not their inability to keep the law. Their great rebellion was their turning the law into their God, and then they felt the reality that it could never be kept, and they lost the whole purpose because they gave up. This is why I think that Protestants do this all the time. They give up God for his word. That is a rebellion, by the way. It doesn't matter if you're orthodox. It doesn't matter if you have every verse memorized in the Bible. If you don't know Jesus, you've missed the whole point. And when we forget to remember that we're not here to learn about God, but we are here to meet with him, then we're missing the point. And I think that this is the great rebellion of the church today. I think this has been my rebellion. And I think, if I'm honest, it's probably yours as well. That we often turn to the church not to meet with Jesus, but we want to find, you know, six ways to be a better human, how to have a better marriage, how to be better parents, how to, how to 
succeed in life and, and be able to navigate the insanity of the culture wars and how to be politically um, engaged and how to you know, take back our country for Jesus and all of those things, everything in between, doesn't matter if you're on the left, doesn't matter if you're on the right. And I would simply just say, none of it matters whatsoever if it isn't leading you to a knowledge of Jesus because he loves you and he waits to be wanted. He waits to be wanted. He loves you. Israel's history, I don't need to comment much on this, this great prayer. Read Exodus if you want to know the whole story. God has delivered them from so much. And yet the moment difficulty comes in, which is the same problem that we have today, it's all fun and games to follow Jesus when you first meet him and it's a, the, the romance period. Just like a marriage. Marriage is so exciting when you first fall in love. And then for the rest of your life, it's terrible. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> it's actually a gift. I actually was just saying, told Darcy, I'm like, how is it that I still get excited every time you come in a room? Every time. Every time. But it is different than it was. And the excitement actually has grown because it has been unbelievably difficult at times. And I know it's been way more difficult for her than it has been for me, because I'm freaking impossible. And I understand that. I exhaust myself. But here's the thing. The richness of that relationship is because we have endured the storms. It's because we have pushed through those seasons of what feels like irreconcilable differences. Man, Chesterton was so right when he said, if everybody could get divorced for irre irreconcilable differences, then it seems to me that all men and women would be divorced because all men and women are incompatible by nature. We don't know how to push through the valley. We're constantly looking for the Mount of Transfiguration and we chase after all sorts of things that will bring that kind of enlightenment when all along Jesus is quietly saying, I've already done everything that needs to be done. So come to me, turn back to me. So we tend to be rebellious in spite of God's graciousness, but God continues to be gracious in spite of our rebellion. In fact, Genesis to Revelation is a revelation of a God who makes it his business to enter into our rebellion in spite of the fact that we turn our backs on him. For he remains faithful even when we are faithless. And you're like, well, that's, you know, for some, for the chosen, but not for everybody. Really? Well, I have as many passages and probably more than you do to, would argue that God is a God who actually really did die for the world. The world actually means cosmos, not just some in the world, but he died for the world. It doesn't mean that all will say yes to his yes, but his yes is universal in its scope, but not universal in its reception. And I think that's important for us to understand. He is gracious in spite of our rebellion, and we tend to be rebellious in spite of his graciousness, and this is why the gospel is such good news. Secondly, 
We are given over, but not given up. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of their enemies. You want to be your own gods? You want to, you want to be adulterous? You want to choose for yourself the gods you're going to worship, the kings you want to serve? I was the perfect king. God never intended to give Israel a king. They demanded it, and he said, because of their rebellious hearts, I will give them a king. And it's the most heartbreaking history. And in spite of that, God still chooses his own vessel by which he will bless the world, which is always the mission of God through David. But I think that Israel's history, but David is not uh, one who just simply wallows and basks in the mercy of God 24 seven through his entire career because it took him blowing up his, his life through adultery and murder, the loss of children, the, the treason of his own son who ends up being killed. His kingdom is, is fragmented because of his rebellion in spite of God's graciousness. And yet God does not give up. And I love this. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. Notice restorative, restorative wrath here. You want to be your own God? I give you over. I give you over. And they recognize they recognize what they have done and what they have lost. And in that time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had, after they had rest, they did evil again, rebellious in spite of. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. So they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Come back to me. Why are you rebelling against me? Why are you turning back to your old ways? Why do you do this? God, through Jesus in Revelation, Jesus, there is no God behind the back of Christ. What does he say? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He doesn't say, behold, I kick your door down. And I think that the freedom that we experience as believers is something that is unbelievably fragile. Nothing is fragile like adjusting to freedom. Because freedom is something that can be immediately misused. The more freedom you have, the greater the possibility of making an absolute disaster of your life. And you can shut Jesus out even as his child. And he will give you over to it. But I believe that he can give us over, but it doesn't mean he's given up. What does it say? Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. Many times it, you, you delivered them according to your mercies and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and they would not obey many years Notice, their obedience, their disobedience came out of their unbelief. They don't obey to believe. They didn't believe and disobeyed. 
Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. How beautiful is that? A restorative wrath. Wrath is God's love violated and his love burns fiercely against everything that is unlovely in the beloved. And we need to understand this. Finally, repentance and boldness because of. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, and our priests, our prophets, and our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers. Notice their repentance comes out of God's gracious returning of them to their land. He has heard their cry and they have been restored to the land. And yes, the land is decimated and it's not really even theirs, but it has brought them back to him. But it's his grace that has led to repentance. We don't repent to receive grace. We have received grace because it can't be changed. It's God's immovable love toward a rebellious humanity in spite of our rebellion. And it is that grace that actually has the ability to bring about real repentance. We think it's effective somehow. If we just beat people down, they'll turn from their sin and then they'll experience grace. No, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's God's graciousness. You wouldn't come to God unless he made himself known. It doesn't matter how much light there is if you're blind and you can't see unless he gives you vision. You can't respond to what is seen until first you're given vision. There is a miracle that has taken place. Anytime you feel a conviction for your sin, just know that the miracle is that any movement you take toward God, he is always previous. Always previous. Even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. Notice, not only are they repenting, not only are they repenting, they said our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom. And amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before, and they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works, behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our li livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. I want to just close with this great 
passage is that the children of Israel, when they take a moment to remember God's graciousness in their lives, when they look at the place where they're at and they're like, how is it possible that we have been able to come back to this land? That we have been able to come together as they have heard the word of God preached. God is in their midst and what comes out of God's graciousness is an undoing. They are unhinged. They are broken by the rock that is God's love. Jesus is the rock. He is the physical embodiment. He is God himself. No God behind the back of Christ. And these parallel forces, God's graciousness and man's rebellion, actually come to cross purposes at the cross. And it is no longer a parallel force, but it is an intersection of forces that creates the great paradox of human existence. As Chesterton said, the cross with its four arms reaches up to the, to the heights of heaven and down into the depths of hell and it extends to the edges of time, past and future, and encompasses all of human existence. The parallel lines of human rebellion and God's graciousness continue to run through history, but the cross creates the intersection by which we can recognize today even more fully than they are recognizing here just how good God is. They recognize God's graciousness through their own history, but we live on the other side of Calvary. So what is our excuse? What is our reasoning for our rebellion? Why do we continue to turn to our own silly works to prove our lovability? What invisible figure or audience are you performing for that, need, that you need approval from? Because God says, I give you my approval when I see you in my son. And if you're in his son, you have the perfection of Christ as a covering over you in spite of you. And this is why Jesus continues to use foolish, glitchy, broken human instruments like me and like you, in spite of us, as a means of bringing his great gospel to the world. What I want for you, I always say this to my preachers, to our teaching team, whenever I speak to preachers, um, I want for you the same thing. I don't want us to have information about a God we don't know. I want us to be an embodiment of the very message that saves. We need to be an embodiment of Jesus. We need to be naturally supernatural and supernaturally natural. When people meet us, they should experience the X factor, which is Jesus plus your glitchiness. And if people say, what is Jesus like? Are you comfortable saying, well, he's like me? Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
He's clearly not saying that he's a man without sin, but he's saying, imitate my surrender to the one who is sinless, because when I decrease, he increases. You guys, this is the source of revival. We can't cause a revival. That is God's gracious act. But I do believe we can prevent one if we misuse our freedom. May the freedom that God has given you in Jesus bring you to a place of repentance today that says, Lord, forgive me for being my own God. Thank you for giving me over to those stupid things so that I could feel the emptiness of them and once again come back to you. Because every day in the Christian life is the possibility of returning like a prodigal to the heart of the Father. He loves you. He is for you. It doesn't matter how many times you've walked away. He loves you. He will leave the 99 to find the one. And if you've never even began the journey, you're dead in your trespasses, but you feel this weird stirring, like, what is going on? I, like, why do I feel like crying? Why, what's, what's happening right now? It's because God has drawn you to himself through his son, Jesus. And we believe at Door of Hope, if Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. God has entered into the brokenness of humanity and has died for wicked, broken, evil sinners, which is, someone asked me once, do you think I'm, a, do you think I'm a, a, an abomination? And I said, I thought for a second, and I'm like, absolutely, I definitely do. Um, I go, but no more than I think myself is. I think we're all abominations without Christ. And that's why our only hope is to put our trust in him, the one who loves us in spite of that abomination. He became a curse for us so that we could become righteousness. He became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He loves you. Repent. Turn back to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel and its ability to bring life into our hearts and into our minds. We need you. Jesus, I pray right now that by your spirit, you would guide us into the truth of who you are, that you are a God who has always been gracious, always pursuing, always drawing. You are a God who forgives and that forgiveness is revealed through the work of your son and Jesus you said father forgive them you weren't prying out of the father some reluctant act but you were simply proclaiming the very heart of the father for you and the father are one and so we proclaim that forgiveness a forgiveness that isn't simply available it's a forgiveness that's achieved and the reason we repent again and again is not to wallow in our sin, but to humble ourselves before your gracious gift. And that gift is yourself. I don't want us to be a people that just know about you. I want us to be a people that know you and experience you. So right now, I pray that you would draw the lost to yourself. For scripture says that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. And so we say together as a church community today, maybe some will say it for the first time, Jesus is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus is Lord. Say it one more time with me. Jesus is Lord. Amen.